Thank you so much, team. And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to join me in John chapter 5. And uh, we're going to walk through uh, those first uh, few verses, 16 or so verses of John chapter 5. And, and as we continue to walk through this gospel of John. And uh, our theme for today is turning point. And we, we all can relate to a turning point. It, it, it seems like things are going one way and either something happened, something said, uh, some, some action takes place, and then, and then it goes a, a different direction. Uh, and we see those turning points. We see them in conversations. Uh, we see them in movies. We see them, uh, we see them in games. Uh, if you're a March Madness fan, and I think Monday night, the Kansas went in like a 15-point uh, behind, and halftime was a turning point. Came back and won the game. Uh, think about fishing. You, you go fish and you catch nothing all day and you change the lure and perhaps that is the turning point and you start catching fish or at least uh, that's how it's supposed to work, right? There's, there's these turning points. Uh, even this morning at our 8 a.m. service, we were able to celebrate baptism uh, with, with our brother Joel and, and uh, we'll be able to see that through video next week. But, but there was a turning point in his life where uh, just that fresh surrender to the Lord and, and following in obedience, uh, what God has called him to do. And so we, we, we get and see these turning points in, in just practical ways uh, all around us and even our own lives. And for John chapter 5 and these first 16 or so verses, what we are walking through is a major turning point specifically in this gospel, but really the ministry of Jesus. Because in the Gospel of John, the first chapter is really an introductory. It introduces us to who Jesus is and why he's come and his purpose. And, and almost gives us a snapshot of, of what his gospel is going to pour into our lives as we read it and, and meditate on it and study it. And then chapters 2 through 4, as really you see the earthly ministry kicking off for Jesus. And honestly, like the, the multitudes are enamored. Like they, they are curious, they want to see the miracle worker, and so they are, they are seeking him out, they are seeing what he can do, and they're just amazed. And so there's this curiosity about who Jesus is. And, and then chapter 5, which is where we're at this morning, there is a turning point. And that turning point is where, in general, Jesus' earthly ministry that was marked by a lot of curiosity and, and just kind of like seeing what this is all about, the turning point is this, is curiosity and interest is turning into opposition and hostility, specifically from the religious leaders. And so if we're going to look at a, a, a specific event in, in the life of the earthly ministry of Jesus, where the hostility just goes up, another notch and continues to turn up. This, this is the event where this happens. And he's going to perform an incredible miracle. Every miracle is miraculous. And every miracle has two purposes. A miracle always meets a specific need. Every time you see Jesus engage in a miracle, he is, he is, he is addressing and, and, and bringing healing uh, to a specific need. But then it's also every miracle serves to point to the reality that he is the Messiah, that he is God, that he is God in the flesh. And so we're going to see this amazing miracle, but I want us to see this miracle through the mercy of God. God's mercy is amazing. 
And I think we would all agree is that none of us are worthy of this mercy. And yet his mercy is, is, is offered freely to all of us. But we're going to see this miracle through the lens of mercy with this main idea is that God's mercy calls for response. God's mercy invites a response from us. And so let's look at John chapter five, verse one, and we'll walk through the text. The Bible says this, it says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So where we left off in chapter four last week, Christ had just brought healing to a royal official's son. He was in Capernaum. And so Christ performed this miracle. And the Bible says there, there in verse one after this. So, so a lot of, a lot of folks believe that, that this is now an, uh, almost a year later from that event. We don't know a hundred percent, but some time has passed. And so it's after this, that Jesus is making his way back to Jerusalem, which Jesus Christ is the son of God. He's God in the flesh born into a Jewish family, the king of the Jews. And as a Jewish, as a Jewish boy, he would have grown up going to Jerusalem to the Jewish feast. And so there would be three specific feasts where Jews were required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate that. And so we don't know which feast it was. It might've been Passover. Matter of fact, this Friday, as believers celebrate Good Friday, Jews will be celebrating Passover all over the world. And so it could have been that he was going to celebrate Passover. It could have been uh, the Feast of Weeks. It could have been the Feast of Tabernacles. These were the three major Jewish festivals. But again, Jesus obeyed the Old Testament law perfectly. And so he did everything perfect because we could never do it perfect. And so his perfect obedience is for us. So it's feast time and he's there. And so as he's going to this feast, we see in verse two, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called, in Aramaic called Beth, Beth, Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. So there's a sheep gate. The, the city of Jerusalem was walled. And so there's a wall around it. There are gates around the wall and there is a specific gate called the sheep gate It was located near the temple. And so it's called the sheep gate because this is where they would bring the sheep in to offer sacrifices on the temple mount and at the temple. And so it was a short, just a short uh, walk from the sheep gate to the temple. And so the sheep would enter there. But by the sheep gate, there was a pool and the pool is called Bethesda. It's important to know that, that, that the Bible is, is accurate. It is real. It is not fairy tale. It's not make believe. You can go to the pool of Bethesda. You can see you can see the, the remains of the pool of Bethesda today. You can go and visit them. You can see them. This was a, this was a real place. And it was, this is pool of Bethesda, that word Bethesda, it means house of mercy. And I love that about this text. I mentioned, I mentioned as we walk through, I want us to see God's mercy because Jesus is going to the house of mercy. Matter of fact, the, the, the city or the, the pool's name is Bethesda. Anywhere you see B-E-T-H before the rest of the name, it means house. So it's the house of mercy. Bethlehem is the house of bread. Anywhere you see a, a B-E-T-H. So this is the, the house of mercy that Jesus has come to. And the Bible says this in verse three, that in these, so in these pools lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. This word invalid speaks of those who are in need. They can't see. 
Some can't walk. Some have lost the ability to move. Some have suffered great disease. And so they've gathered around this pool called Bethesda as house of mercy. And the Bible says that there's a multitude there. That it's believed that on a typical day that there would be somewhere around the neighborhood of 300 people that would gather around these pools. And during a festival time, the city would swell. And so there's, there could be as many as 3,000 that have gathered around these pools. And so why in the world would they gather around these pools called the house of mercy? And this is where Jesus is coming to bring mercy to the house of mercy. And the older translations, for example, if you have a, a King James Version or a New King James Version, there's a verse 4. I preached from the ESV and the, the newer translations, they don't have verse four in there. So in my translation, it goes from verse three to verse five. But I want to read verse four that would be found in the, the, the King James or New King James. It says this, it says, for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. And then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. So why is that? Why does, why does the, the, the newer tra uh, translations not have it? And why do the old ones do? It, it's because this, this verse isn't found in the earliest manuscripts. And so over time, potentially a scribe had written in the margins, kind of the, the, a little more context into what's happening here. And I, I'm glad they did because it shows us why would all of these, why would all of these invalids gather around th this pool? It's because there was a superstitious belief. And the superstitious belief was that these pool waters would bubble. And when they did, the first person to the water would be healed. And so no wonder all of these people have gathered. And, and, and these are people in desperate condition. And, and as a desperate person, you do desperate things. And so they, they make their way to this place. The reality is, is there were subterranean springs that would feed the pools and the pools would bubble up. The reason that we see this text is that God is going to do an incredible act of mercy in the house of mercy. Look at verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, I did the math, and I, I know it's not exact, but if you do the math, that's 13,870 days. That for almost four decades of his life, he had never walked. The Bible says in verse six that when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going another steps down before me. Now there's so much to see here in this, in this, in this text, but but I just want us to see the fact that Jesus sees. Jesus saw this man. Compassion always begins with seeing people. It is very easy to have our to-do list and our task list and the things we need to get done. And all we see are those things that need to be done. All the while we are passing people. We are figuratively stepping over people to get our agendas complete. While there is great suffering that is going on all around us. And I love that Jesus saw him. Compassion always starts with seeing. It always starts with being sensitive. 
To which I would say this, and this is just an encouragement for all of us, is I'm, I'm sensitive to the fact that, 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 that we have those who are with us today and even listening online. And here's some encouragement is the fact that Jesus sees and Jesus knows and Jesus cares. He sees the broken things in our life. He sees the pain in our life. He sees the broken situations, the hurt, the pain, even the sorrow. And so the encouragement that we see is that Jesus sees, be encouraged that Jesus sees you. And he sees this man for 38 years that's been paralyzed and he walks up to him and he says, do you want to be healed? To which we hear that and we see that and we're like, yeah, I mean, of course, but, and I, I don't know, but I just wonder what others would think if they heard. Like, is this some type of cruel joke? Like I've seen people bully people. I've seen people hurt people. It's not right. I don't know if people are, are here and, and I don't know what kind of conversations come and go as people pass them or step over them or move beyond them to get where they're going. But, but it could even be that, that somebody's like, is this, is, this, is, this a, is this a cruel question? A cruel, do you want to be healed? But Jesus is so intentional with everything. He has great purpose with everything. He is the ultimate question asker. And when he asks him, do you want to be healed? This question gets his attention. And it addresses the physical need that he has in his life. And it causes him to reflect. Because as many of us would maybe think in a heartbeat a second, of course he wants to be healed. When you think about that, his entire life is about to change. His whole life is about to shift. His whole life is going to be different than it has been. And that can be scary sometimes. That can be uh, create even some, some fear, some fear, some anxiety about what's coming. But I love that Jesus asked this question and it shows his love and it shows his care and it shows his mercy. And honestly, I don't know when the last time this brother experienced anyone who saw him and sought him out and showed mercy and love in this kind of way. So Jesus is talking to him in verse eight. And Jesus said this, he said, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. <laughs> Can you imagine what that must have been like? 38 years, four decades, almost 14,000 days of not having the ability to use your legs. And Jesus says, rise up. And in an instant and in a moment, he was completely healed. This is the work of Jesus. This is what Jesus does. He didn't give a partial healing and then say, hey, go to the Jerusalem CVS and pick up like some medicine and take this for 10 days. And then we're just going to hopefully it all work back. Come back and see me if it does. No, Jesus, his miracles are, are instant. They are whole. They are complete. He's meeting a need, but there's always a, a larger purpose in view of every miracle. And that is to reveal that he alone is the Messiah, that he is the Savior. And we see that God's mercy is offered freely. It's offered freely. Mercy came to the house of mercy. This man did nothing to deserve God's mercy. He did nothing to deserve God's grace. He did nothing of his own kind of self-will to 
experience this healing. Rather, it was the mercy of God. God is a merciful God. Psalm 86, verse 15, the Bible says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This man received mercy. All of us, the fact that we are living the breath of life, are experiencing the mercy of God. Mercy, by definition, is God withholding the punishment that we deserve. This is difficult to say, but the, the, the gentleman in Bethesda did not deserve God's mercy. The religious leader, self-righteous, they don't deserve the mercy of God. We do not deserve the mercy of God. The Bible teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all missed the mark. We have all kind of made that departure from God's design and we have gone our own way and it leads to brokenness every single time. But yet it was in God's mercy that he reached out and extends his grace. And we see this incredible love and compassion. And we also know that God is just. So I want to share a, a quick picture that, that I think we'll, we'll connect to. And, and uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, they use this illustration a lot in, in their ministry. But, but I want to imagine this. I want to imagine that when we wrap our service up, you have to get home and you, get to, you need to get home quick. And so you jump in your car and you slam on the gas and you're cruising at about 105 miles per hour on your way home. I don't know why you have to get home, but you got to get there and you got to get there quick. Maybe you're like super hungry and you're like, we got to go. And on your way, you see blue lights, right? You, you love, don't you love that feeling? <laughs> it creates a, a pain inside that is unlike any other. And so, so, so you pull over to the side uh, going 105 miles per hour. And this, this, this cop, sheriff, deputy, they, they pull you over and, and they don't even really have much of a conversation. They're just like, we're impounding your car. You're going me to the courthouse. And so you go to the courthouse. It just so happens that your father is a judge. All right. Your father is the judge of that area. So you're on your way to the courthouse. And on your way to the courthouse, you're like, my daddy loves me. <laughs> he loves me. I'm so thankful I'm going to my father because I know my father loves me. He's a loving father. And so you're, you're like cruising into the, to the courthouse thinking like, it's all good. We're golden. But also as you make your way in the courthouse, you remember another thing. And that is your dad is a really, really good judge. <laughs> He's a really good judge. He never punishes the innocent, but he always punishes the guilty. He's a good judge. He's loving, but he's just. How does that work out? What happens there? And so you make your way into the courthouse and you stand before your father, who is the judge. And the question is asked, child, the officer says you were going 50 miles over the speed limit, 105 miles per hour. How do you plead? So let's just go ahead and answer that as a group. How do we plead? 
guilty. Let's not even like, like we, our car's impounded at this point. There, there's no getting out of this. Like, I don't know. I think I was going a little bit. No, like, like you're, you're busted. And so the penalty, because he is just, is a $1,000 check or one week in jail. And you don't have a $1,000 check to write. And so in enters the bailiff and they take you and you are on your way out of the courtroom when your father, the judge, gets up from behind the the, the area he's presiding, his office, and he takes off his robe and he steps around and he gets a paycheck and he writes a check for the exact amount of the punishment of your crime. And he writes down $1,000 that he is coming out of his account and he's offering it to you. And he's asking you, do you want this payment on your behalf? To which I'm thinking we all would say, yes. But in a very silly, simple way, this is exactly what Christ has done for us. We have all missed the mark. There are, in reality, no good people because all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned against the holy God. We have all missed the mark. And so what did Christ do? We are declared guilty and he is righteous and just in that. But yet for God so loved the world that he gave his son, his son, Jesus, the son of God, clothed in flesh, dwelt among us, lived a perfect life, a life you and I could never live. And he is crucified on a Roman cross, shedding his blood to make the payment for our sin on our behalf. He took our place and they placed his body in a tomb. And next Sunday, Easter Sunday, which we celebrate this every Sunday, he resurrected from the dead, proving he has the power to forgive sin. And grant peace with God. And he extends his mercy and his grace to all. If they will repent and they will believe. And this is what we see. God's mercy is offered freely. He's offered freely in his mercy calls for a response. So Jesus full of mercy brought this man immediate and complete healing We see God's mercy is offered freely. Verse nine, the Bible says, and at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. He walked. Now I mentioned from the get-go that we're gonna see a turning point and we're about to see it. If if we were to zoom out 40,000 foot and look at this passage, we're gonna see that there's a bigger purpose to Jesus visiting the house of mercy and offering mercy on this specific day Because we are going to see that God's mercy is rejected by the self-righteous. Verse 9, I read it again. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. And now that day was the Sabbath. This is the turning point. That day was the Sabbath. So that the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. And I'm not the type of person to just like scream or, or, but I just want to scream. Seriously? Seriously? Almost four decades? 28 years? This man has been unable to walk and he's able to stand up and he's able to move And this is the message from the self-righteous saying, you can't pick up your mat. It's the Sabbath. Now we zoom out. 
Jesus is showing us a bigger picture. This is the turning point. This is where the persecution is going to begin to be turned up. He is, he is moving forward in his mission. And Jesus is going to confront the religious leaders. He's confronting their man-made religious rules. He's confronting their legalism. Now, if we looked in the Old Testament, if we went to Exodus 31, verses 12 through 14, you would see where God in the Old Testament that he prohibited work on the Sabbath. That the instruction is to take a break from your week-long occupation. The Mark 2 reminds us that God made Sabbath for man. He didn't make man for the Sabbath. It's a gift to us. To which I'll just say, we need rest. We, we, want, to, we want to wear those capes like we're superheroes, but we need rest. We need to rest. Rest honors God. But that wasn't enough for them. And so the rabbis created a list of 39 forbidden categories of work. And they created this list because they wanted more. They wanted more. And so it was considered work to carry. And so they're getting on to him. They're getting on to him for carrying. This is a category of work. Uh, even today, Jews who hold strictly, strictly to the Sabbath. Today, they will not write on Sabbath. They will not erase on Sabbath. They will not tear on Sabbath. They will not do business transactions on Sabbath. They will not drive or ride in cars on Sabbath. They will not shop on Sabbath. They will not use the telephone on Sabbath. They will not turn on or off electricity on Sabbath. They will not cook. They will not bake. They will not kindle fire. They will not garden. They will not mow their grass. They will not do laundry on the Sabbath. And I don't say, I say this in a respectful way, not, not a flippant way at all. Literally, I, I, I read an article on, on how to encourage Jews to keep Sabbath, those who want to keep Sabbath. And one of the instructions was to tear toilet paper before the Sabbath so there's no tearing on Sabbath. That, a, that a, another one was to tape your light switches in your home. So if you don't just by like instinct, just flip on the light when, you, when, you're, when you're walking through your home. And all of this is created to, to get it all right because in the view, it's keeping the law perfectly that grants them God's grace and God's mercy. But yet Jesus is trying to teach them a message. A couple years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Israel. I was there on the Sea of Galilee, staying at a hotel over Sabbath. The wealthy Jews would come into the hotel and stay so there was no, no work. In the lobby, there would be three elevators one of those was a Sabbath elevator. It was an elevator that stopped on every floor. You never push the button. And so you just get on. And so there's no movement. There's no acting. There's no caring. There's no touching. And so there's, there's this, this perspective that, that Gerald Borchert says. He says, not only in John, but also in the other gospels, Jesus is portrayed as seemingly unconcerned for the rabbinic traditions about the Sabbath. The rules of the rabbis were a misunderstanding of God's design for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not means to God's approval, as the rabbis seem to suggest. The Sabbath was not merely a rule for humans, but a gift to humans. It was used to honor God and to benefit his people. More importantly, Jesus was Lord of the Sabbath, as he shared in Mark chapter 2, verse 28. But they were so wrapped up in the man-made rules that they were not able to rejoice in this brother who had been healed after nearly 14,000 days and three decades of, of misery. And so, 
we see as we move on through the text in verse 11 that he answered them. The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in that place. Remember, there's a multitude. There's a lot of people there. So Jesus brings healing in his mercy and he steps out of the picture. He's up. The religious leaders are moving in and they're questioning him. You almost get the idea that he's almost backed in a corner and his defense is just to deflect, deflect that man, that man speaking of Jesus. And verse 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. I want to jump down there to verse 16 for a moment to get this picture that this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And that word persecuting in the original Greek language, it's a present imperfect tense, which means they kept on persecuting him. They persecuted him then and they persecuted him the next day and the next day. And it's the idea that the persecution only ratcheted up and kept on continuing that culminated in what we celebrate on Good Friday as the crucifixion of Jesus. That there was not a satisfaction until Christ was crucified. So we see God's mercy is offered freely. We see God's mercy is rejected by the self-righteous. And a, a third observation is that God's mercy is spoken in truth. Verse 14, Jesus goes back to this man and says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Well, that, that, is, a, that is a strong, that's a loaded statement right there. And there's a, there's a, there's a lot there. Sin no more so that nothing worse could happen to you. Certainly, like all illness is not the result of, of uh, in this case, the, the, the invalid is, as he was struggling. It's not a result of personal sin. But it does teach us that perhaps in that time, some, some were. There are consequences to sin. We could all testify to that. That when we depart from God's design and we go about our own way and we try to do things in our way and the way we think they should be done, that ultimately that there are consequences to sin. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So for Christ's words, this was a very strong warning. And I think it's good for us to hear this warning this morning. Because he says this, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And this man may be like, what, something worse. Something worse. Three decades, 14,000 days. And what Jesus is teaching him is that if you continue your way pursuing yourself in your sin... And you do not acknowledge your sin and repent of your sin and turn and trust me. There will be a greater judgment that is coming. That there will be a greater judgment. And that judgment is the eternal punishment of hell that awaits all of those who refuse to repent and place their faith and trust in Jesus. And in his mercy, Jesus is sharing this with him. 
in his mercy. And so in the words of Christ, we see that he is inviting this man to repent and to trust in him. In verse 15, the Bible says that the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And everything we gather from this specific test, text that we can see is, is that this man did not make a decision to repent and to turn to Christ and to follow him. Rather, it's like he jumped right back to the Jews and to those religious leaders. And whether it was fear or whether it was not wanting to be edged out or, or, or perhaps fear of persecution in his life, he just refers to the man as Jesus. And again, he, he's diverting. And, and all we can tell is that this man who had been a recipient of God's incredible mercy toward his life, if all we have is this text, that we don't see that he, he made that decision to repent and to turn and to trust in Jesus. And so there is so much to take from this, this text, but I would encourage us to go up 40,000 foot again in the air and see the picture This is a turning point in redemptive history. And that Jesus could have healed this man on a Tuesday. He could have healed him on a Thursday. He could have healed him on any day. But Jesus went to the house of mercy to give this act of mercy on Sabbath. Because he's confronting the self-righteous rules and man-made religion. And ultimately pointing a world to his mercy that is available to all. And this invitation to repent of their sin and to place their trust in him and him alone. So how does this text challenge us? It challenges us several ways. But one, I would just simply encourage us this, is that we would see people. And that sounds random. We're we're sitting in a room of people right now. There's people beside you. People behind you, people in front of you. And it's so easy to go about our lives, especially during the busy time, which doesn't it seem like sometimes we live in that busy time? But yet God's design is not that we just race past people or step over people figuratively as this brother had for 28 years. But rather, but rather that, that, that we, would, we would see people as we go. And that as we're going, that we would see them and reach out in compassion. That if we were all just take a moment and stop for three, like three minutes, and we were just simply to reflect on those people who we know are in our areas of influence or family members or friends that we can think about, oh, you know what? I, I, haven't, I haven't reached out to them in a while, or I know it's been a while, or I, I, I really need to take some time out and, and, and reach out. The reminder here is that compassion is that compassion sees people and that we would see people. And a second observation is that when God does speak and he reveals to us what that next step is, that he invites us to take that bold step. I think about that, you know, the, the, the man in the text. I mean, he had a real decision to make. I mean, if he, if he, if he obeys Christ's command to get up and walk, everything is going to be different now. What, what are people going to say? What are people going to think? What are they going to do? And so he had this real opportunity where he had to process. And my conviction is this, is that for every believer that the Holy Spirit is always desiring to guide us and lead us to that next step and whatever that looks like in following him and being obedient to him. And that can look a lot of different ways. 
But the fact that we would, by grace and through the power of the Spirit, be obedient to that step and just see what God has in store. What could this man, what could he have missed out on? What could he have missed out on? But yet he took that step of faith. And that step might be following in believers' baptism. That step might be reaching out to someone who there's been some a fractured relationship and just simply to reach out and, and strive to, to mend that, that broke. It might be that there is somebody in your world that you, you know you want to share the hope of Jesus with, but, you, but honestly, you're nervous, you're scared, you're fearful. What are they going to say? And so there's this tension about what, what do I do? What will I, what will I say? It might be taking a step of, 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 of making Christ the center of your marriage. Maybe, maybe there's this sensitivity to like, you know what, this, this, our, our marriage isn't everything that, that we know that God wants us to be. And I know we need to take this step and, and just taking that step or, or, or you know, it, it can be anything. It's however the Lord will lead us. But the encouragement is this. If the Holy Spirit prompts your heart and guides you and shows you that step by God's grace, take that step of courageous obedience and to obey him. And then one more thought is just that we would be very guarded, that we, don't, we would never allow self-made rules to not allow us to rejoice in a, in a miracle and a great work in another person's life. And that we would value people and we would love on people and we would pray for people and we would care for people and that we would take that step. And, and we see this warning in the text. But the last thing I would share is this, is, is God's mercy calls for a response. It always does. We are all recipients of God's mercy. And so the question might be today is that have you responded to God's invitation to have a relationship with him? Have you responded? Have you come to that time and place where you acknowledge that you have missed the mark? And that you are a sinner in need of God's grace and changed your mind about sin and turned to Christ in his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And place your faith and trust in him to be the Lord of your life. And the Bible promises, the Bible promises that there is grace and there is mercy and there is cleansing. And there is a relationship that is made right with God. And he places his Holy Spirit in you to strengthen you and guide you and ultimately eternally we'll be able to spend eternity with him. And so if you're here, maybe that's the step that you need to take today. His mercy has come to all of us today in the house of mercy. So I'm going to pray and we're going to have a song that we'll, we'll sing together. And as we do, we'll have pastors who are here that would love the opportunity to pray with you. The altar is always open, but the encouragement today is that we would respond to God's mercy in however however he reveals to us this morning. So let's pray together. Father, we love you. And we thank you for this opportunity today to walk through this incredible passage where your great power is on display, unmatched, unrivaled. But God, we also see your great mercy on display. But Father, we see that, that this man did nothing to earn pay for or, or barter to earn your grace and mercy. God, you just, you just offered it freely. 
And Father, I thank you that you have offered your mercy to us freely. And Father, we pray, God, that as believers, as Christians, as Christ followers, God, your will for our lives is that our life looks like yours. That the ultimate will of, that you have for our lives is that we'll be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus. And so God, help us to see people. Help us not to figuratively step over people, but rather, God, give us a great sensitivity and to show mercy and compassion to those in need. God, help us to, to trust you with those steps of obedience, that bold, courageous faith, God, with those areas that you're calling us to, those steps of obedience, God, show us and that, and that we would faithfully, with your strength, God, take that step and obey you. And Father, I pray, I pray, God, that we would have a great sensitivity to those who are apart from you. And that, God, today would be the day of salvation. That for those who are living apart from you, that they would acknowledge their need for you, repent of their sin, and place their faith and trust in you and you alone for salvation. So, God, we love you. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your compassion. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.